Hi, you're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm your host, Lou Rosenfeld. I'm very pleased to have my guest today, Katie Swindler. Hey, Katie, welcome. Thank you. So happy to be here. I'm glad to have you. Katie is, uh, well, she's wrapped up a book uh, for Rosenfeld Media that is at the printer, which is really nice. In fact, Katie, I approved the uh, proof this morning. Um, now we'll see what the supply chain does to um, the printing uh, duration, but it's it's out of our hands even now. Uh, the book is called Life and Death Design, What Life-Saving Technology Can Teach Everyday UX Designers. And this is a book that it's such an interesting angle on design. And it's got, as you would imagine, just a bunch of great stories and we're going to get into a couple of them in just a moment, but um, Katie, uh, I love that you have a background in theater, which really helps you in uh, doing the work you're doing now, doing design for Allstate Insurance, right? Yeah, actually, more more than you might suspect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, like to say, you know, the creative process is the creative process, and so whether you're managing uh, a bunch of actors and uh, technicians and lighting designers and set designers or a bunch of uh, stakeholders with the egos and the you know designers and technologists uh, from a from a web design standpoint really the process is the same and that sort of uh, history of collaborative making um, has served me well in my career so far. Well, you're certainly not the the first UX person I've I've met, or even one of uh, even the first Rosefeld Media author uh, who's who's got that type of background. But um, now you're you're looking at high stakes design settings with life and death consequences in this book. Such an interesting transition. I don't know if you're going to be handing copies uh, to any of the uh, adjusters who uh, are. are dealing with claims uh, in all the, you know, calamities that are befalling us these days. But um, you're looking at how stress, stressful situations uh, are, are really instructive for the people who uh, obviously design for those situations they have to understand how stress impacts humans, human users, but also the everyday designers who aren't working in quite those stressful situations. So I know you, you start off by talking about stress, mm-hmm. it, you, it, it's almost like the discussions that uh, some people have about empathy. There's a lot of varieties of stress. Mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of stress are you getting at? And, and you also make the point that it's good for humans. What, why? Yeah. Well, stress evolved in humans, right? We, we survived because of our ancient ancestors' stress response. It kept them alive. It kept them on their toes. It helped them remember where the danger was in the forest and the foods that you weren't supposed to eat. Uh, So stress is an important part of being human. It's an important part of our daily process. You know, cortisol, which is the primary uh, stress hormone in the brain that drives a lot of our our stress-based behavior, it's it's a driver. And we wouldn't get up in the morning without cortisol, right? That's the chemical that slowly rises as as we come towards the end of our sleep cycle that helps us wake up in the morning and actually helps us get out of bed. So we need it. Um, If you don't have that drive, you end up not having any drive. It's depression really at the end of the day. Uh, So, um, it, it's a, it's an incredibly important part that the, what I focus 
the most on in my research and in my writing and speaking is the acute stress response. Um, but, you know, there's, um, there's multiple different types of stress. There's um, uh, stress, which is um, actually positive stress. That is this kind of stress that you feel when you're, when you're really challenged by something, you're really engaged in it. Um, and then there's a hypo stress, which is the unpleasant feelings that you feel when you're bored, right? It's that boredom that drives you, again, stress drives you to do something and it drives you to change your situation so that you're not bored anymore. <laughs> so, and then there's distress and uh, under that distress uh, umbrella is chronic stress, which so many of us have been surviving uh, over the last few years, uh, if not longer, and um, acute stress, those moments of peak stress. Lots of times we talk about the fight or flight response, fight, flight, or freeze. And What's really interesting about the acute stress response is it's kind of the maximized version of the stress response. So I found it a really good teaching tool, you know, just like when you're teaching a child to speak, you use baby talk because you're exaggerating, you know, the, the syllables. Um, the acute stress response exaggerates the different components of the stress response, and so it makes a great teaching tool. So if you can understand how to design for the stress response and the acute stress response, the same rules apply for chronic stress for boredom. You know, the, 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 all the principles are there and exaggerated in a way that makes it, makes it great for teaching. So stress is good. It helps us uh, survive as life forms, and, uh, mm. and it's good for designers to understand. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, a good story or situation, maybe something that you've got in the book, you can give us a little sample of, um, where designers have to understand and have essentially designed for uh, high stress situations. Yeah, I, I think it's oftentimes hard to remember how often stress happens uh, that, you know, uh, a startle response or, or a peak stress moment can happen at any time when somebody's doing almost anything. And lots of times we get so focused on the happy path or the intended use of our products as we're designing things that we forget about all the other ways that it might be used. Um, one story that uh, I, I, was, I was going through some research with a, a fellow designer, a woman named Daniela um, at Allstate, uh, co-worker of mine. And she, I, I don't know, I was talking to her about some research I was looking at around like emergency buttons, right? Like the, these big red emergency buttons um, and, um, and how ironic it was that the more stressed we get, the stiffer our hands get and the harder it is for us to press tiny buttons. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, we're, we're creating all these products that like require people to press buttons in order to make themselves safer. But the more stressed they get, the harder it gets to, to press buttons. I'm, I'm, I'm geeking out with her about a research like designers don't want to do. And, and but I tell her this stuff, she gets really still and she goes, I know exactly what you're talking about, Katie. And she tells me the story. So she she was cleaning her house one day. She has two sons at the time. Um, this was like 10 years ago. But at the time, her sons were four and eight. Her eight-year-old playing in the yard. Her four-year-old is following her around the house while she's cleaning. She's upstairs. Mm -hmm. And um, she's cleaning up one of the bedrooms and she leaves the room for just a second and comes back in and her son's not in the room anymore. And the window is open. And oh the no. Screen, the screen is off the window. And she said, she told me, she said, 
I knew exactly what had happened. And she walks over to the window and she looks down and her four-year-old son is lying still on the pavement, two stories below. So obviously she's freaking out. She starts screaming his name. She runs down the stairs. She goes through the kitchen. She grabs the cordless phone. 10 years ago, it was a cordless phone. She runs to his side and the kid is breathing, but otherwise he is not responding to her. She's losing her mind and she knows she needs to call the ambulance, but she looks down at the phone in her hand and she told, oh, it gives me shivers just thinking about this. I, I'll never forget this. She said, Katie, I couldn't find the nine. Like she knew she needed to call 911, but she literally couldn't see it in the phone. That's how far her stress response had gone. And at, by that time, her older son had heard her screaming came up to find out what was going on. And she holds out the phone to him. She's like, you have to call 911. And it was her eight-year-old son who, who called the ambulance and saved his brother's life that day. So I, the, the moral, the, the story has a happy ending. The kid went to the hospital, a couple of nights in the hospital, no lasting damage, full recovery. Thank goodness. Um, but the, what's so striking uh, about that story to me um, on the human side of it, on the, on the experience of, of Daniela is how much her brain changed in that moment, right? Like she could no longer see numbers, recognize characters. Um, she knew what she needed to do, but her reason had so abandoned her in that moment that the tool that she had to help her was useless in her hands. Um, and then from the design side, right? Like that phone was not designed for that moment, mm -hmm. but it was the only thing she had in that moment. And, uh, you know, as, as a designer of a phone, you know, you're picking fonts, you want it to look cool. You want it to stand out on a shelf, like of all the use cases and, 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 you know, it, personas you're designing for a panicked mother is probably not on your list. Right. And so just thinking about these things as designers and taking responsibility for them and, and understanding really what, what, what drives people and, and, and the limitations that we have. Because another really interesting thing that, that shows up over and over in the, um, in, in the research is the way that stress affects memory, right? Mm -hmm. It really is a downer on our memory, our ability to remember. And the, also our ability to even empathize with our own selves and our own behavior when we are under extreme stress. Uh, we forget, we forget what it feels like in that moment. We forget how hard things are. Um, and um, it, it's, uh, it, you know, and so then, then as even as, as practice and empathy as we are, it's hard for designers to, to imagine ourselves in that moment and design for that moment of panic because we can't even remember what it felt like when we when we experienced it. Well, I mean, you know, there's so many interesting constraints you're ringing up here. There's the constraints of the technology and, mm -hmm. and how you might design it and the constraints that uh, we're under, under stress. So speaking of panicked mothers, uh, mm -hmm. my mom, who's uh, pushing 92, a couple months ago, she fell, she lives alone, uh, independent living, but, uh, she lives alone and she fell and, um, she has one of those, uh, panic buttons around her neck on a pendant and she couldn't operate it. 
Now, maybe she pressed the button and there was a problem on the receiving end. We, we don't really know, but she was mm. on the floor for quite a while. Mm. Is, was it her? Was it the design of this, this object that has only got one purpose, that purpose? Right. So it's really illustrative how um, we are so limited in these situations. There's so many things that can go wrong, even when you think you've simplified it to uh, as far as you can as a designer. Yeah. yeah. And sometimes that simplification works against us, right? Like if you're, if you're thinking about really designing for high stress, high stakes, something like a space shuttle, right? Mm-hmm. They that a fundamental principle of designing in for military um, and and um, aerospace is uh, two is one. So you always want to have that redundancy, that backup. You all, if if you are a soldier, you know you you don't want just one weapon on you. You want two. You don't want just one way to make fire. You want two on your person at all times. Two is one. That's a very common military mm-hmm. saying. And, um, you know, I think when you think about designing, especially for things that you know are going to be used in an emergency situation, like that call button, two is one, right? Like, how can you, um, how, how can you put those uh, redundancies in place uh, so, so that there's always some sort of fallback and, and, and things can still go right even when they go wrong? So, it, so would an everyday UX person take that principle of two is one and say, okay, uh, well, let's say my information architecture needs to support at least a couple ways to navigate. Yes. Yes. Okay. I, I, I personally think as, a, as an industry, we've become a little too obsessed with streamlining, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, that, uh, you know, we, we often strip out, um, any sort of redundancies that we're seeing, uh, you know, one of the things that you'll, you'll hear people sort of poo poo another design is like, Oh, look at how, it, how often it repeats. It repeats over here and it repeats over there. It's so inelegant. Yeah. But I, I think how often things repeat, even in the human body, we have two hands, we have two eyes, mm-hmm. right? Like, we, we, like all of the important things we've got two of. And so two lungs, two kidneys, you know, pretty much to the heart, but even that's got two chambers or four. So, you know, like it, that, that duplicity is, um, I, I think we could use some more biomimicry, you mm-hmm. know, like, like learn from nature. Um, and, and Again, it's very common when you're designing something like a space shuttle. It's less common when you're designing something like a mapping app or, um, you know, something that feels less life and death. But if, you know, you're using that mapping app to get your wife who's in labor to the hospital on time, then you need, (laughs) that is, that is a, that is a high stakes experience. Um, So I, I think we don't often give ourselves enough credit for how much people rely on our products to, to do things in a moment of crisis. Um, And, and we, I think we could think about that a little bit. It's interesting. Yeah. I mean, like as a father, I'm, um, you're making me think about how, now, when uh, my kids, which are who are old enough to go and do things on their own, uh, and they stay out late, um, and they get in lift, mm-hmm. I can see where they are. And I gotta say, that's a stressful situation that's been really addressed pretty well by the designers. Are there other principles like two is one that you have found have really 
come over from the high stress, high stakes setting and uh, are really great for everyday design situations. <laughs> yeah, I got a whole book, whole of, book them. of them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That was a softball. There's too many examples. Maybe. <laughs> I know. It's like too many to, to pick this one. Let's see. What are, what's some of my other favorite children? Um, uh, yeah, I, I think, um, oh, there's, uh, in, when we, we think about uh, designing for experts, um, you know, so often a lot of the use cases and designs are around um, uh, designing for everyday users, but we have a growing number of designers who are designing products to be used by experts um, and thinking about um, how you best support those experts doing their job. So let's say you're making, um, you know, a, a software to be used by customer service app uh, representatives, right, while they're on the phone or, um, you know, used by medical professionals in the field or any number of other times where we're using technologies to accomplish our jobs. Almost every job these days is, is using technology. And um, especially in, in those sorts of situations, um, one of the, I, I interviewed a woman who, um, who may or may not design for the CIA <laughs> for intelligence mm. analysts. Uh, she wasn't able to talk to me in great depth about who exactly she's working for. Um, did you have uh, the interview in a parking garage? Yeah, I did. And, and, and she was smoking a cigarette. It was very atmospheric. Um, no, but, uh, um, yeah, Sam was great. She, she, she designs, um, for intelligent agents, uh, software to be used by intelligence agents. And um, she talks a lot about um, creating interfaces for those folks to support decision-making, right? Um, and to reduce bias um, in, in those decisions. Mm -hmm. um, intelligence analysts are hyper aware of their bias. They know that uh, they are working with imperfect data. Sometimes their data sources are like, are you know massive big data sources sometimes they are you know interviews from maybe people who are lying right mm -hmm. like there's all sorts of different data sources they're working so, with so intelligent agents need intelligence agents need intelligent agents got it okay <laughs> yes, i'm with exactly. you and um you know she's always working to create interfaces uh, that help them see everything that they need to see at once um, and, and support decision-making. So, um, you know, she, she talked about how, you know, oh, you know, so many designers, they just want to clear away the clutter and they just want to have one thing on the page. She's like, that's the opposite of what these analysts want. They want dense data ruthlessly with ruthless uh, hierarchy, right? So that so they can see everything that they need in one pl place mm -hmm. to support the decision. They understand um, which are the reliable sources, which are the unreliable sources, which are the complete sources, which are the incomplete data sets. Um, and so that they can weigh all these factors against each other, understand where the biases might lurk, where the missing data might lead to false conclusions. Um, she wants to know what the known knowns are, the unknown knowns, the unknown unknowns, right? Like she, she, they, they want all of that revealed in, in their software display. Mm -hmm. um, and she talks a lot about a 
assigning the work to the humans that the humans are good at and assigning the work to the computers that the computers are good at. Um, and that, that's another one that I think any designer can put to good use, right? That um, things like exact memory, right? Like remembering not just the fact, but where did it come from and what was the level of, of reliability of the source, et cetera, et cetera. All that detailed uh, stuff can be kept by the computer working in tandem with the analyst who can pick out like, oh, this is the outlier or this is the important piece of mm -hmm. it or this is the story that this is all telling me as, as, uh, as an analyst. Um, um, that sort of storytelling or, or spotting patterns that haven't already been programmed to be looked at, that stuff's very hard for computers to do. They're starting to get there. They're, they're, they're making some progress, but still like it's, it's really hard for a computer to find a pattern it's not already knowing to look for. Um, but, but humans are great at that. Right. So how can the computers, you know, as opposed to a, a human mapping every plot of point of data onto it on a graph that would take you know day to do by hand the computer can create it in seconds mm -hmm. and then the analysts can use their eyeballs and their intuition to you know see what's there and be like oh that 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 is out of pattern um let's dig more there or oh look at this cluster over here that's interesting you know let's let's dig in um well the computer sort of keeps them honest in terms of yeah, that's interesting, but is it reliable, right? And and sort of working in tandem to to check those biases, but also allow the the human um, analysts to to bring their intuition and and their their human reasoning forward. Wow, uh, and that's just one of your stories. <laughs> this is one a whole so, book of them. <laughs> but, and and unfortunately, we're going to take a well depending on how you're feeling. We're going to take a quick break and then we're going to dig in a little bit more into some of these stories. You're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. We'll be right back. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you want more, not only do we have a whole bunch of podcasts in our archive, but we have something that's very current, very alive, and very engaging for groups. And that is our communities. Rosenfeld Media runs a variety of communities that meet on a monthly basis for video conferences on a variety of topics near and dear to UX people, ranging from enterprise experience to advancing research to design and research operations. I want to encourage you to join one of our communities. Again, it is free by going to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. Not only will you get a monthly video conference that you can listen in on and participate in, ask questions and so forth. We'll give you access to the recordings. And uh, for some of those communities, we're talking about dozens of recordings with really interesting presenters and facilitators. You'll also get a newsletter. You'll get access to an advice columnist. Yes, we actually are providing advice columnists for each community. And finally, if you're interested in our conferences, our communities correspond to our conferences. So you will be the first to know when programs, uh, when programs go live, uh, when tickets go on sale, and by the way, most of our conferences sell out, and other good things about our conferences, such as uh, when the scholarship applications open up. So go to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. You're going to find something that's free, something that's interesting, and it's a great opportunity to find your tribe as well. We'll see you there. Welcome back to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm with Katie Swindler. We're talking about her new book, 
Life and Death Design, What Life-Saving Technology Can Teach Everyday UX Designers, a Rosenfeld Media book coming out soon. Uh, it's already mid-September. We're fighting uh, supply chain issues with the printers, and uh, it's the busy season for them. I hope the, the paperback version will be out by the end of the year, but for sure the eBooks will be out. You're going to want to pick up a copy. Uh, if you've been listening to the podcast so far, I think that should be uh, self-evident right now. Mm -hmm. uh, Kate, let's get back to it, though. Uh, one of the things that you get into in the book, it's actually the last chapter. It's called Hero by Design. You're exploring ways to help bring out the best in your users and help them save the day. Can you tell us the story of a heroic user? Sure. Um, you know, the one that I uh, use in the book is a, a pretty familiar story of Apollo 13. Um, you know, thinking about, um, uh, if, if for those who aren't familiar with the story, uh, the Apollo 13 mission um, was supposed to be, uh, I believe, our, our third trip to the moon. Mm -hmm. um, there was a air tank that exploded um, uh, after the uh, astronauts were a couple days into their journey. And um, instead of landing on the moon and, and coming back as planned, um, they had a very harrowing trip where they actually had to use the moon's gravity to slingshot themselves back towards Earth. Um, only they had to uh, survive in the moon capsule for multiple days, barely had enough oxygen to make it back. Um, and a uh, really great uh, Ron Howard movie, uh, mm -hmm. Apollo 13, if you haven't seen it, highly recommend it. And um, Amen. Uh, the, the space nerds in my life tell me it's actually incredibly historically accurate. So uh, it gives a, a really great uh, rendition of, of the story. It, and, it, and, and it really uh, highlights, I believe, a lot of the principles for designing for heroic interventions. You know, there's um, uh, one of the things that really led to the astronauts being able to get home um, was the incredible professionalism, um, the, um, and the, just the sheer, <laughs> the sheer amount of work that NASA did uh, in preparation for these missions. Um, the way that they would test and document uh, every single iteration of every single thing that could possibly go wrong while, uh, you know, through, throughout the mission, and then painstakingly document it at the time in these binders. They had these giant three ring binders. And actually, if you look it at uh, old archival photos from NASA during those mission times, those Apollo missions, and you look in the back, oftentimes you can catch glimpses of shelves of binders behind all these guys in mission control. I think I've seen some of those photos. <laughs> or binders on the desk. There's often mm -hmm. usually like three or four binders on any of the guys' desks. And it was all guys then. And, uh, and so they, um, you know, they, they documented it all, indexed it all. And I, I mean, even if you think about it from a design standpoint, that the, the documentation, the indexing, even where they place the binders in the building, those are all design decisions that allowed those 
those those engineers when when the there was the explosion of the air tank and all of these lights and bells started going off they were able to go exactly to the right binder literally pull the solution off the shelf and thank god they did because there was only 15 minutes of oxygen left in the main capsule by the time they had transferred the uh, yeah, unbelievable. And so, you know, they they would not have made it if they had taken even 15 more minutes to to understand and and solve the problem and know what the right thing to do was. And it's something that had, you know, quote unquote, killed multiple test crews in the past, right? So they had they weren't able to figure it. It wasn't one of those things that they could figure out in the moment. They had, they'd really had to think through and and plan to to find a solution, but they were able to literally pull it off the shelf. Um, hey, so you're giving me a horrible flashback, actually. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, you know, uh, one of the projects, the uh, big ones that we took on uh, at my old IA company, Argus Associates, in the, this is like 1997, was like a few days practically after the um, company, uh, AT&T, uh, our client, had like all those big binders mm-hmm. of information supporting their call center uh, operators so if you'd call into AT and T and you had a problem with your, you know, whatever, yeah, and and so they had like f- taken those binders and all the stuff in them and put them in like a big HTML meat grinder, <laughs> and then it was like that was the internet, and no yeah. one could find anything, mm-hmm. and they were and w- like we went to the call center and sat in and and observed and and it was so stressful. <laughs> like now that I look back on it, mm-hmm. and we we would just see them printing all kinds of stuff on their cube walls that they'd found in this crappy intranet. Uh, and, you know, it was like, you know, you know that there's going to be a very angry customer stressing you out, asking you this question. So, and it was so hard to find the information that once you find it, you better print it for next time. Yeah. And then the problem was a lot of that stuff was things like prices that changed. So then now they're giving out the wrong information so it just seems like yeah i mean like stress is this operator in so many settings when you point it out so thank you Mm -hmm. for doing that hey i got one more question about the book uh it's the first rosenfeld media book with a content warning how come Well, when you're talking about life and death design, uh, there's uh, definitely uh, a lot of things that uh, we touch on a lot of traumatic topics. Um, So, you know, as an author, um, I included both a content warning and and, um, a bias acknowledgement in this book. Um, You know, a lot of stress research is done in the early half of the 20th century, um, uh, especially within Western medicine, that meant that the researchers are primarily male and white. Mm -hmm. And uh, it also meant that the participants in the studies were primarily white males, usually graduate students. Um, And so, you know, I think it's important that as we're trying to better understand stress, um, but thinking about designing for humans and, and practicing human-centered design, who, who are the humans we're designing for, right? Um, and so uh, being sure to acknowledge that, you know, that there may be some biases lurking within um, the research, um, though I will say stress um, the experience of stress, the, the bio, biology of stress, the, the chemicals of stress, 
um, are very shared throughout humanity. Mm -hmm. Um, The causes of stress, the amount of stress, the weathering effects of stress um, can be very different. And and the reactions and behaviors driven by stress can be very different from culture to culture, group to group. Uh, So that's, you know, that, that, that was one part that I wanted to make sure was acknowledged. And then of course the content warning, you know, we, we, when you're looking at safety design and, and uh, um, stress design and uh, all of that, you know, you touch on everything from airplane crashes to, um, you know, childhood trauma. So um, there's a lot of things in the book that, um, are very dramatic stories. Um, you know, I shared that one at the beginning, you know, a, a child falling out of the window yeah. that can be, um, probably should have a content warning at the beginning of this <laughs> um, podcast. Uh, maybe we can add one in post. Uh, but, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're topics that if somebody has experienced a similar trauma can, can be really triggering. And so I just wanted to give people that warning. I think that we, we, we meaning you, me, Marta, and, and the team, we, we did as good a job as we could to be respectful, to tell those stories uh, with an eye, not towards sensationalism, mm-hmm. but toward learning and education. Um, and they're told for purpose, always told for a purpose um, so that we can learn from them. Well, thank you for that. And for being so considerate of your user in this case, uh, with the content warning and the, uh, the bias acknowledgement. One last thing before we wrap, and this is a tradition on the Rosenfeld Review. I always like my guests to shine a little sunlight on something uh, or someone that could use some recognition. What do you got for us? Yeah. Um, so there was a woman, uh, Ava Penzimog, that I spoke with several times during my research uh, for this book. She's a fellow researcher and an author. She's uh, recently published Design for Safety by A Book Apart. Um, she focuses on a slightly different portion of, of the sphere. I always love talking with her, but our, our, our research was, you know, just in, in slightly different areas. She looks a lot at um, uh, how design can be abused and um, how to design um how to design products so that they aren't uh, used by abusers, like uh, domestic mm-hmm. abusers using technology to terrorize or track, uh, stalk. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, domestic partners. Um, so there's there's a whole other field of, of safety and design that I think the work she's doing is incredibly important. She thinks about design for safety in a way that I don't think enough people are thinking about it. And I just really admire her work and and her her approach. So just would love to to shine a little light on Ava's work. And I think it just came out like in the yeah. last month. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing that. Somewhere, somewhere, Jeffrey Zeldman is smiling. <laughs> Katie, thank you so much. Great conversation. Great book, Life and Death Design, What Life-Saving Technology Can Teach Everyday UX Designers, a Rosenfeld Media book coming out very soon. I hope you'll pick up a copy. Thanks again for joining us today, Katie. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Rosenfeld Review, brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen and check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at rosenfeldreview.com.